From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting today, though, talking about a couple of things in the city of Vancouver. First up, though, how to get more hotel rooms. We know there has been a shortage of hotel rooms. How to make it so... The shortage is being looked at seriously. Well, Sarah Kirby-Young is a Vancouver City Councillor and is joining us on the line now. Councillor, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you as well. I know you are bringing a motion forward to address this. What are you going to be putting forward to Council? Yeah, so the motion really is sounding the alarm about the dire shortage of hotel rooms that we have in the city. We've got a gap, um, and recent modeling and a study by Destination Vancouver shows that demand will exceed supply as early as 2026, so that's just, you know, a few years away. Um, and then we have to have a shortage of about 10,000 hotel rooms. And so what I'm putting forward is an ask to set targets to deliver those new hotel rooms, just like we set targets for housing. Um, but also to look at um, changes to our policy that will better um, kind of clear the barriers uh, and allow some hotel projects to move forward. So having targets, though, how do you make it so those targets, I mean, is there a punishment or is there a negative, something negative if those targets aren't met? No, oh, it's really just about setting goals uh, because we haven't, uh, you know, quantified and said this is a problem. And so when we have housing targets, for example, we have staff that report back um, annually to council on how we're doing to get there. Um, and the hotel piece has just not uh, been taken with the same level of um, kind of commitment uh, to solving the issue. Um, and in terms of how we get there, I think that there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, some of it is around mixed-use developments. Um, typically, we have different um, planning requirements around the size of floor plates for, say, office versus hotel. And so it makes it difficult to have a mixed-use building, for example. Um, we're also seeing, obviously, with uh, changes in work patterns that people are returning to work, but not as many days per week. Uh, so we may have some additional office space so we could enable conversion of office to hotel. So I think what we're doing here is let's set uh, some goals and then let's figure out some strategies for how we can get there. Um, that 10,000, just to put it a new hotel rooms, to put it in perspective, if you build a hotel that's about 200 rooms, you're looking at 50 new hotels um, that we need to enable and bring forward. So we, we know the size of the problem. Uh, we need to put some specific strategies in place to tackle it. And would they be mainly in the downtown core of Vancouver, or are you looking at having hotels in the region or more throughout the city? Yeah, I mean, my background is in the tourism sector. I worked for Destination Vancouver for a number of years, and um, downtown is always the draw. That's where, you know, large meetings and conferences, and um, a lot of people want to come and stay because it's got access to great services and amenities for visitors. Um, But we're seeing that need expand out. So along the Broadway corridor is another one. Uh, the Granville um, Entertainment District is working to revitalize that area. It is a perfect uh, place to have hotels alongside entertainment uses. That's really complimentary. Um, and we're seeing it in the Canby Corridor. Uh, we approved a hotel there close to the Oak Ridge development. So I think there's opportunities as well to spread beyond it. Right now, the policy is pretty geographically constrained uh, within a certain segment of the downtown area. And if you fall on one side of the block, you can build a hotel. And if you fall on the other side of the block, you might not be able to. So is that a council decision then, if council kind of deals with the red tape, making it easier on on that level? Absolutely. Um, yeah, this is a policy just like we set a uh, policy for housing. And, you know, we've had some policies, policies in place uh, to incentivize rental housing. Um, and that resulted in building more rental housing in the last couple of years than uh, any council has. 
so if we set uh, policies that are going to support hotels, I think that we can um, we can close this gap. And it's so important to our visitor economy. Um, and I think, you know, I said this before that the visitor economy and tourism is an unsung hero, but we are leaving thousands of jobs and billions of dollars on the table if we don't have hotels and people don't have anywhere to stay. And so this is coming to council or when do you anticipate there might be a decision or some movement on this? Yeah, the other thing that I should say uh, quickly is uh, also that uh, it's not just supporting the visitor economy, but also the impact that it has on housing. Uh, Airbnb is obviously a very live conversation right now, uh, but people are going to turn to Airbnb and it's going to have more impact on our housing stock if we don't have hotels, which is another reason that's really important. It will come to council next uh, Wednesday, September 13th, and I expect that we'll have a decision that day. I uh, wanted to ask you as well, you mentioned Airbnb. Uh, Short-term rentals is one of the items that is on this long list of potential fees going up in the city of Vancouver. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this? This is coming to council as well. And already there is a lot of feedback that, uh, sure, this is being sold as a way to perhaps keep property tax hikes steady or even lessen them. But is this not kind of not reading the room in that people are stretched and the last thing they want right now is to pay more fees for things like dog licenses, Airbnb licenses, parking passes, that kind of thing. Yeah, let me. I mean, let me provide some, some context that might be helpful um, for listeners. And, you know, we are definitely responding to public feedback on this. Affordability is a very real issue. It's a real, um, it's something that weighs on our minds for Marin Council yeah, every day as we're looking at um, delivering services to Vancouverites. Uh, we don't want to see a property tax increase like we saw last year. Um, it was necessary uh, to catch up on a problem which was underinvestment um, by past councils and in, uh, infrastructure, and we talked a lot about that. Um, and yes, we have some significant challenges. Um, we do survey um, pretty substantively around the budget processes uh, for residents and for businesses. And what we see is that there's a lot more willingness to pay fees for services um, as opposed to a broad-based tax increase. So, for example, um, our survey showed that 43% are opposed to property tax increase, but only 5% of people were opposed to fee increases. Um, And similarly, we saw that 64% of residents and 57% of businesses were more willing to see a fee increase for services they were using um, than they were to see that broader tax increase. So that we're sort of going from a database perspective and we're trying to be really responsive to what we're hearing from people. Is there not something to be said, though, or has anything been done as far as looking at spending less rather than upping fees and having to bring in more revenue? Are there not things in the budget where money could be saved? Yeah, so the answer is yes. Uh, there's a lot of work underway. Um, you're, you may remember that uh, Maris informed a budget, the Maris Budget Task Force. Um, they are actively at work. We're going to get a report back in the fall. Uh, and the mandate for that group is to really look at opportunities um, where we can be effective, most effective with the tax dollars, and also opportunities for new revenue um, bringing into the city um, so that we don't have to rely constantly on punitive increases for people because we know that people are struggling. So there is a lot of work, um, and we're definitely delving into that. When we look at things as well, like parking, and people understand that that parking, especially where it's a premium, costs money. But if you look at the uh, street parking, uh, curbside, uh, or the residential parking permits, so right now I think there are 52, around 50 to 100 dollars, uh, going up to 65 to to 130. Uh, things like that. And I get what you're saying that in the survey, people said they would rather pay fees than have just blanket tax increases. But but that's an example of a fee that's going up 
people aren't getting more services for that. It's just costing more for the exact same thing. Yeah, parking is uh, um, is very complex in the city because the, the fees can vary by different neighborhoods. You have some neighborhoods that don't have full permit fees and others that do where the space becomes more premium um, as we densify and there's less availability for everybody to share those those assets, so to speak. Um, but, I mean, let me say again, we're really aware of the pinch that people are feeling, and that's why we're doing this um, fulsome work on the budget. A big part of it is also trying to provide quality services that people can enjoy that don't take a bite out of the wallet. So it's trying to invest this into things so that people can enjoy parks and, you know, um, quality, um, well-priced, affordable recreation, that uh, community pools on the weekends and, you know, at swimming lessons for your kids, all of those kinds of things uh, that can help families, especially, um, and that are really filling that affordability pinch. Uh, is this a done deal then? These fees are going up or is there still time for people to offer up feedback to talk to council about it? Uh, there's always an opportunity for feedback. Um, this report has just come out. Council are receiving it um, pretty much uh, close to the same time that uh, it gets published for the public. And so uh, we always want to hear from the public, and they're more than welcome to write in. All right. Councillors, um, uh, sorry. Call whatever, whatever they, however they'd like to contact us. All right. Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, thank you as always for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, we were just talking about the cost of living and the proposed fee increases in the city of Vancouver. I'll play some of your responses to that, getting a lot of calls to the buzz line on that. But that kind of goes to what we are talking about next. And this is a rally that is being planned for this weekend to raise more awareness about the plight of many seniors. And Sharon Elliott is the organizer of that rally, and she is joining me on the line now to talk a little bit more more about it. Sharon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jill, for having me. Well, tell me a little bit how you got started dealing with the fact that many seniors are having difficulty, like many people, making ends meet and drawing more attention to that. Well, being a senior myself this year, I I um, had to let go of a part-time job, so that put me in the position of trying to live on um, what we get from the government. And I started looking into actually what was happening for the seniors. I got the um, advocates report that came out uh, a year ago called Seniors uh, Falling Behind. And I started, you know, looking into all of these things. Also, I read a wonderful um, email from the BC Health Coalition um, that was concerning all the health um, inequities for the extended health benefits for seniors. And I started looking at all of this, uh, the letters that had been written, the reports that had come out, and I noticed that it wasn't changing anything. And then I started thinking, I, I was looking at what, what was happening across Canada with, um, you know, the government workers going on strike, WestJet went on strike, and these people were doing that because they didn't have enough money to live on with the inflation. And so uh, we couldn't go on strike, but what I thought was um, it's time for the seniors to be the change that we need. And we needed to stand up. We're not invisible. <laughs> we need to stand up, be united, and we can't strike, but we certainly can rally and bring awareness to this situation. So 
We have a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of support, and I do believe a lot of seniors will be coming out to show their support for this, and uh, that's how this got started. And when you say you've got a lot of support from seniors, is that what you're hearing from people? Uh, You referenced Isabel McKenzie's report on seniors, and she did find some some pretty interesting numbers going back to even 2019, that median income was around $30,000 a year. Uh, 25% of seniors are earning less than $21,000 a year. Uh, so is that what you're hearing from people or, or have you been hearing from people about some of those struggles? Yes, I, I started going around to the senior centres um, in my area and uh, talking to the seniors in person, wanting to get them motivated because we're not invisible we need uh, the opportunity to be seen and to be heard and to bring awareness. And right now I see that um, it's actually 28% of seniors and uh, their annual income is about $22,000 a year. So we all know that everybody is struggling in uh, 2023 with the cost of living and all the inflation. And seniors do not have a livable income. So they are struggling as more seniors going to food banks. There's more seniors that are running out of money. Do they pay their electricity bill or do they buy food? I would imagine, too, that seniors would also fall into the category of if you are a renter, constantly worried about if you are going to be run evicted or if somebody is going to to change the rental status. If a family is moving in, a family of the owner and that there is that uncertainty and, and trying to find affordable rent in scenarios like that. Yes, that that is another issue. Um, although I, you know, I think there is a more awareness of that because I do see that brought up on uh, the media quite often. I mean, they're looking at it; they do recognize it. Um, that is an issue. I know there's lots of seniors that um, are living in one room and paying a lot of money for that. So um, that is definitely something else that needs to be addressed. But I have yet to hear any, any, any news about seniors and their income and the health services that they're not receiving. And those are the two main issues that I'm, I'm going to be focusing on. And we have uh, speakers uh, coming to the rally. We just found out that uh, Jenny Kwan is going to be joining us. So I'm really happy about that. And, um, yeah, so I I hope that seniors will come out and um, attend the rally and come and support seniors, um, stand up for themselves, speak out, and just show that they're not invisible. And uh, tell us, Sharon, again, sorry, when and where the rally is taking place? Okay, the rally is at City Hall this Saturday, September the 9th at noon. And by City Hall, you mean Vancouver City Hall? Yes. Okay. And I, I know you're having this at City Hall and and, and hosting it there and, and hoping for crowds there, but are you also putting this out to the provincial government and the federal government or, or to all levels of government when it comes to what could be done potentially to help seniors who, who are struggling financially? Yes, I, I did have a meeting. That was one of the first things that I, I did. 
um, was I sent two letters to my MP, and I did eventually um, get to sit down with him in person and discuss this. He will also be coming to the rally. That's our MP, uh, Talib Mohammed. And, um, yes, I mean, we have invited David Eby. It would be nice if he would come and speak to seniors and um, hear our voices. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's both governments that need to be involved. It's both the provincial and the federal, <clears throat> excuse me, that need to work together to help pull seniors out of poverty. Uh, one of the recommendations that came from the seniors advocate was indexing the BC seniors supplement to inflation and making it consistent with other supports, uh, I think more federal supports. Do you think that would make a difference? Would that, would that at least be a start to, to seniors getting a bit more? Well, it, it would be a start, but we're so far behind. I mean, the government hasn't moved it forward. It is such we're so far already so far behind in what we're getting that we need much more than you know a little one percent or two percent. We need to be raised up to what would be a livable income in Vancouver in two thousand and twenty three. Well, Sharon, I know uh, there will likely be a lot of people at the rally. Again, that's taking place uh, Saturday at Vancouver City Hall at noon. Thank you so much for joining us, for talking more about what got you involved and got you organizing this. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, the people behind something called Mozilla's Privacy Not Included Buyer's Guide have been taking some time to look at security and privacy, specifically when it comes to vehicles. And they have gone through a number of new vehicles to look at what's actually happening when you plug your phone in, when you spend time in that vehicle. And the title, the headline of their publication on this says it's official, cars are the worst product category we have ever reviewed for privacy, saying that all 25 car brands that they researched earned their privacy not included warning label, making it, again, the worst category of products for privacy, saying that they collect personal information, they are in the most, in most cases, selling your personal information, and you might be surprised at just how much personal data they are accessing. Well, joining me now to talk more about how concerned we should be about this is Anne Kavukian, Executive, Direc Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre at Toronto Metropolitan University. And great to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure, Jill. Thank you. I think when we get into these new vehicles, whether you own a vehicle, maybe you've spent some time in one, we know that they are, are smarter vehicles, that they are computers on wheels. But do you think people are, are, are understanding, do we know just how much of our information these vehicles could be and are actually mining? Of course not. People don't have a clue, nor should they be expected to. The fact that you're paying a significant amount of money to buy a new car would suggest that that's your car and whatever information flows from it is yours. No, it turns out that, as you said, the car makers are actually selling your personally identifiable information to unauthorized third parties that you haven't consented to. You're not even aware of it. It is such an appalling practice that 
your personal information is going out the door when you buy a new car and spend all this money. It's ridiculous. It has to stop. Is it something that we're signing and like one of those agreements that people scroll through through and check the terms and conditions but don't actually read the fine print? Is there something where people, where consumers are actually signing off on this? No, I don't believe so. First of all, when you buy a new car, you're focusing on the merits of the vehicle. You know, it, it drives properly, it goes the right speed, you know, all those kinds of things. And what's not being pointed out to you is what they actually do with any personal information they collect from you. You're not being told, oh, we're free to sell this information to third parties. And the car companies are making a fortune from this. It is completely appalling. Privacy is all about control. It's about personal control relating to the use and disclosure of your personal information. Here with these car makers, it's out the door. We have to stop this practice. Because something else that this research also uncovered was that, that it, then again, they looked at 25 popular, well-known car brands saying that 92% of what they looked at are giving drivers little or no control over their personal data. So yeah. not yeah. even do you not know about this, but there's nowhere yeah. where you can go in and opt out and say, no, I don't want That's you right. taking my information and selling it. Exactly. Which, is, which just adds to the outrage I feel in learning about this. Because they're totally trampling over all of your, well, privacy rights. You have none in their hands. And your personal information is flowing to unauthorized third parties who knows what they're doing with it. It's completely unacceptable. And you're paying for all of this. This has to stop. It, it, it brought that up as well in that it's not you're just sitting in the car and maybe talking about something or sharing information, but also, as many people are aware, you'll plug into maybe you have serious radio or you have on the dashboard, you're using your CarPlay and you're plugging into the system. Is that where they are mining or where they are getting this data information from our phones? Certainly among those areas. But there's also a number of other areas where they could be obtaining your personal information from the time of purchase of the vehicle, etc. So what I would urge your listeners to do is file complaints to your privacy commissioner. You have a great privacy commissioner in British Columbia. File a complaint also with the Federal Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Complain that this has to be brought to a stop. At least get them to investigate this completely unacceptable practice. Is it something that we're talking about car companies right now because this research went into different car brands? But so is there no uh, legislation or there are no rules on, on whether or not or how much a company can do this? There, is, there are rules. Um, we have uh, federal private sector legislation, for example, that stipulates what can be done, acceptable practices that are brought to the attention of the data subject and some notion of consent is obtained this falls under none of those. That's why I want people to file complaints uh, with the privacy commissioner against this uh, completely unacceptable practice. And, do you- and, let, and in fact, next time anybody buys a new car, go when you're about to pay the money, speak to the car manufacturer, whoever you're going to buy it from, and say explicitly, I do not consent to you using any of my personal information other than this exchange of, of money right now for the purchase of the vehicle. That's it. Beyond that, you're not authorized to use my personal information 
for any other purposes or give it to unauthorized third parties, not at all. That is not acceptable. I do not authorize that. And what happens if the car company says, sorry, that's uh, that's just what we do when we sell a vehicle? That's part of it. See, I don't think they would because they want your business. Hmm. I mean, you know, business these days is not just uh, flowing that steadily. So I don't think they would completely force it, the sale of a new car. Um, I think they would try to maybe smooth something, negotiate something. But ask to speak to their boss if that's the way they go. And tell them you intend to file a complaint with the privacy commissioner. You'll, you'll, you'll get ahead. I know you will. <laughs> and even looking at some, and this group, uh, the, the Mozilla private, uh, Privacy Not Included, it's uh, three people that are researching this. I mean, they did a lot of research asking yeah. a lot of car companies these questions. I think even the level, here's one where it says, like a lot of car brands, this brand collects information like your name, address, your vehicle's VIN number. They collect data about your driving, what you do in the car, when you accelerate, oh. when you brake, when you use multimedia. They record all of your interactions. Oh. And conversations with them and saying that that's oh. actually pretty standard. That's what car companies are doing. But where it gets vague is what exactly they're doing with this after that, whether it's encrypted, how they're protecting your information or if they're protecting it at all. Okay. Do you want to bet on this? Uh, they're not <laughs> protecting it. If they're selling this to third parties, there's no way they're protecting it. They're doing quite the opposite. And we've got to change these practices. I would love a wide investigation to take place and bring this practice to a halt. Uh, and this is also, so this is uh, Renault is the, the company. This I just picked this one. I thought this was interesting, yeah. too, in that they say we do ask for consent when they collect your geolocation, but they have to do that because Europe's general data protection law, yes. Yes. that's what's making them do that. So if that's a European law, though, there would be many companies here in Canada that don't have to abide by those rules. That's right. And we need those kind of laws. I mean, we've been very reticent in updating our private sector legislation. Uh, So let's get on it. That's why I want complaints to go to the federal privacy commissioner, to the B.C. privacy commissioner. Let's get moving on this. We got to get someone overseeing all of this. Uh, is it enough, do you think? Well, not enough, but is it a good step if you don't need to plug your phone into your vehicle to not do it? I think that's one of the good steps. Uh, certainly it's better than doing it. But there are many other areas that the the cars uh, manufacturers are pulling your information. So I think we need a steady approach to this. And I would urge people before they buy the new car to speak to whoever you're dealing with or their boss and make it clear that you're not granting any consent to their doing this. And and hope that the sale that they still, like you said, that they still want the sale and that's not enough for them to say, okay, well, we can't consent to that. You know, I, I'd be willing to bet on it that they won't say that because then you would be, they would be forfeiting a lot of money. Cars are very expensive these days. <laughs> That's uh, very, very true. Well, it's a pretty eye-opening research, and we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Always a pleasure, Jill. Thank you.
Well, if you are looking to go hiking and you were thinking about trying out one of the popular trails in Lions Bay, you're going to want to think twice because the council in Lions Bay has voted. It was a close vote, but they have voted to keep those hiking trails closed until later this month, at least for another two weeks. Some citing fire danger, the high risk of wildfires in the area, but it was not a unanimous decision. And there are now many questions being asked about why the trailheads have been closed down and how it's going to be enforced. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Ken Berry, the mayor of Lions Bay. Mayor Berry, thank you so much for being with us. Jill, thank you uh, very much for inviting me and having and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about Lions Bay. Well, people will uh, know Lions Bay very well and are familiar with it. And I know it's uh, come as a bit of a surprise to some that the council, that a vote was taken at council to close down a lot of several pop, uh, hiking trails and to close the trailheads. Why was this decision made? Well, I think initially uh, there was a lot happening in the province. There were fires uh, throughout the province in Kelowna, Kamloops and various areas, and and really resources were being st- stretched. So uh, there was some fear that if something should happen in Lions Bay, that we wouldn't be able to react, or the uh, metro and, and province wouldn't be able to react quick enough. So uh, that that decision was made, uh, and then uh, there was a decision made during that time that we would revisit this and and evaluate the situation based on. Uh, expert opinions and input, and uh, so that's uh, what happened. We had subsequent meetings, uh, council meetings, and that's where the motion to reopen the trailheads was put forward, and of course it was subject to uh, professional input by the Lions Bay Fire Department, emergency response coordinator, and metro representative, and at that time uh, those uh, professionals made the recommendation that we should keep the trails open. And there was a vote put forward, and unfortunately, uh, three councillors opposed the opening of those trails, and that led to a lot of disappointment and uh, and I think concern from residents as well as uh, uh, hikers in the region. So that's where we're at. And you supported, though, the reopening of the trails? I did. I put forward that motion that it was seconded by... Uh, Councillor Broughton, and then uh, the opening, or reopening of the trailheads uh, was opposed by Councillor Abbott, Councillor Reuter, and Councillor Cunliffe. And so if the fire department and other officials were saying it was okay to reopen the trails, what was the reason given to keep them closed for another couple of weeks? Uh, that's a good question. You'd have to ask those councillors. Uh, based on the the expert opinions and the recommendations and the best practices followed in the metro area and how sound uh, our expert advisors had recommended uh, that we weren't under extreme conditions and that we didn't meet the criteria to close those uh, trailheads down and that they should be open. And unfortunately, uh, um, three councillors voted to keep them closed and... uh, that created a lot of disappointment within the region. And how is it being enforced, or what does the enforcement look like? Because I know there, there have been issues with parking and it being quite busy with people going up and now especially trying to kind of get those last few days that feel like summer. But are there also issues then with crowds and with parking? Well, uh, there is trail. Uh, there is uh, signs up in the various parking areas and uh, 
on those signs, it's, it's quite clear. It says all trail access is closed. And so that, that's um, uh, pretty much the extent of the policing. And if uh, people choose to, uh, I guess, uh, bus into the community, that's another matter. But uh, right now, uh, there's, there's signage up to that effect. Right. So if somebody went hiking or, or somehow got to the trailhead or went on one of those uh, trails, what would happen? Are there enforcement officers out or it's, it's more of the signs are there, you're not supposed to go there? I think it's more the signs. You know, on the signs, it's, it's very clear in lettering, says all trail access is closed. And I think uh, that, that's the extent of it. Does it seem a bit strange that that Lions Bay is going this route with the three councillors voting this way, but there are no other uh, parts, no other communities in Metro Vancouver that have also closed down their trails? Well, I know that's of concern to our advisors um, that uh, really were an outlier in the metro community and the Howsound region, uh, and uh, you know their their advice and and uh, scientific uh, response and feedback. Uh, I think I think there's disappointment that, that they're not being heard. One of the uh, points I had seen made as well, and I think it was either from the fire chief or, or one of the other officials saying that having hikers on the trails, especially now that it's not an extreme fire hazard, that it's not hikers that are causing the fires that are the danger. But if there are fires, it is having people on those trails. Those are the people that actually report the fires and make sure that officials are alerted about fires if fires do start. Is that concerning that if people follow these rules and there's nobody hiking on those trails, there's also nobody to report if a fire does start. Well, that was one of the uh, highlights that our fire chief mentioned uh, was because there was some concern that there's a, a large number of hikers visiting the Lions and Tunnel Bluffs and other areas in, in the North Shore. And of course, uh, our North Shore and Howe Sound's beautiful areas. So I, you know, think of it as the most wonderful area. And, in the world after traveling, but um, his concern was that there isn't those eyes and ears and and, uh, boots on the ground because he's an advocate that the more hikers uh, that we have out in our forest, the more opportunity we have to to, uh, have an early response to any fire hazards or or brush fires that may happen. So, uh, no, his perspective was that uh, hikers are very much welcome the outdoors and that they are our eyes and ears and and boots on the ground. So he he likes to see that aspect. Continuing now, my guest is Mayor Ken Berry. He is the mayor of Lions Bay. We've been talking about the council decision to close the trailheads, access to some of the more popular trailheads. So at this point, and I should remind people, Mayor Berry did not vote in favor of that. He wanted to open them up. So at this point, we're talking about these popular hikes, the West Lion, Tunnel Bluffs, Centennial Trail, a couple of others that all start in Lions Bay. Is it that they will be closed for the next two weeks? Then a decision will be made on whether or not to reopen them or what happens to those trails now. Well, again, it's the signage that's up. We've got signage that says all trail access is closed. Uh, but you, you, you highlighted that, um, you know, how is that, uh, how is that policed and that. So, I, um, you know, the, the three councillors that have opposed the, the opening of the trailheads, 
have said that the trails aren't closed, in fact, um, but the signs are a bit confusing, so I understand why people uh, have those questions. Uh, but, you know, on a positive note uh, with Lions Bay, I will say that during our last meeting, uh, we passed a resolution uh, to appoint the fire chief uh, as the fire smart safety uh, representative or, or expert that's going to provide the recommendations to our staff so that we can start to implement some of these fire smart safety uh, issues or, or um, uh, recommendations and, and maybe safeguard our community and, and the, the area around our community. So I'm, I have to take that as a positive. You know, this discussion has, has really resulted in, in more awareness on fire smart safety recommendations. Right. So are there going to be steps taken then as far as uh, mitigation, removing fuel, that kind of thing, making uh, the, the, those trails and that part of Lions Bay more, more resistant to fires? Well, that's a good question, Jill. There was a report done in 2007, a subsequent report in 2020, draft report, and then a final report in 2021. And, and th those reports were community wildfire protection plans. And uh, that report in May of 2021, I think it'll be a valuable resource for our fire chief to, to be able to draw from and implement some of his, his uh, um, uh, I guess, initiatives so that we can uh, or he can instruct staff to start to uh, perform some mitigation and, and preparation uh, for you know, the eventual should we have any wildfire in and around the region. And, and just to go back to something you said, so are, th did you say that the three councillors who voted against reopening the trailheads are, are saying that the trails themselves aren't closed? Um, you would have to talk to them directly, but that, that is what, uh, that, that is the message I believe that they are saying is that the trails aren't closed, uh, but it's, it's uh, just the access. To the trails and and I think it's a bit of a word salad quite frankly because it's confusing I've got teenage kids who walk our dog on a regular basis and and they go out to walk our dog uh, get to the trail and it and in a big sign letters it says all trail access is closed and they come home and they say dad I can't walk the dog and uh, you know so it's confusing for residents and it's confusing for hikers and um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I just uh, would like to see these trails uh, and the trail heads, um, you know, access for all residents and, and hikers alike. So I, I think that's important. But, you know, we come back to are we going to follow our advisors' recommendations and best practices? And, and I think, uh, you know, we owe it to these experts to start to heed their advice. Right. And uh, it, it is confusing for sure, because so and again, I know uh, better to put these questions to the counselors. But what I'm getting from what you're saying is so the, the argument is the trailhead access is closed, but the trail itself is not. So if you can get to the trail somewhere else, then that's technically not that's that's OK, as long as you're not accessing it from the trailhead. Again, you're going to have to, I would suggest that you get these counselors on the phone and, and they can probably give you their perspective. Uh, my perspective is it's very confusing and, uh, uh, you know, a signage that says all trail access is closed, um, it, it's, it's uh, pretty straightforward.
we will uh, certainly try and do that. Mayor Ken Berry, appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Jill, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I'd just like to say that uh, Lions Bay is very welcoming and uh, my family and residents of Lions Bay uh, are always uh, open to having visitors. So thank you very much. That is Ken Berry, the mayor of Lions Bay. Did get an email from a listener saying the thing with Lions Bay is we only have one water supply. We are not connected to the city water, and that is why we need to be ultra careful about fire. A fire would or could take it out, i.e. there is no water. Also, cliff jumping kids have lit two or three fires already this year by accident that we have had to rush to put out. He goes on to say we only have one road in and out and massive trees and bush all around most of our homes, so no one should be making comparisons to other urban places with trails or judging our risk or how to gauge it without knowing the details. Sure, I get that, but your own fire chief, your own officials in Lions Bay were the ones saying, keep the trails open, that people on the trails more often report fires than start fires, and the fire risk is not at a level that those trails need to be closed. So thank you for that email. Wanted to share as well, this call came into the buzz line about what is happening in Lions Bay. The current Lions Bay kerfuffle has been coming to a head for a number of years now. Ever since I started working there in 97, there's always been a low-level resentment of the people from outside the community trying to enjoy some of the uh, beachfront and other amenities of the uh, natural beauty of the area period but in the last few years they've been trying to make it as all impossible to go and do anything there their first stop was to while they found that they couldn't legally ban people from parking. They could at least profit off them by making pay parking for non-residents everywhere on the streets there. Another problem that they have is you have a council there that is increasingly inept and just wants to kowtow to the the very vocal minority there without really listening to a lot of other voices. One thing that somebody suggested online is they're trying to get the province to placate this by offering them a big uh, grant to help them improve their water infrastructure there, such as their water that they get from up on the hillside as it's been seriously overtaxed for the last few years, but they want to raise their own taxes to do that. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.